go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about your uh, dog life journey. Um, okay, I'm Janet Wortham Morgan. Uh, started in breeding in the 1980s. Uh, was out for a few years and then came back into it. And when I came back into it, we had um, serious problems with uh, familial Sharpe fever in the breed. Uh, 2011, they came out with a study that showed it was linked to the trait with the heavy wrinkles. And I loved the heavy wrinkles, but I had to adjust what I loved because it's better than trying to adjust to a client calling because their dog's in kidney failure from this. So my priorities and my tastes shifted to go with the health. It's um, familial Sharpe fever or what they call Sharpe auto-inflammatory disease is when the body is overproducing a certain biochemical component called hyaluronin, and this is what causes the wrinkles. Um, Producing too much of that causes inflammation in the body, which can ultimately lead to organ failure and death in some cases, a, a lot of cases. I run a dog group that's over 10,000 members, and we see tons and tons of dogs that are coming up with this and dogs that are dying of renal failure or liver failure or both. So there's a mess out there, and... The science now, since, you know, the studies and the test became available to test for the risk factor, um, this is something that we could mitigate the damage if we all focused on it. So far, there's only a few breeders that are even trying to develop a gene pool that is lower risk in the United States, and that comes from the traditional lines. The traditional is, is what we had um, when we originally imported the dogs here. Most of them were traditional, but we bred away from that towards the heavier wrinkles because we liked it and because the public did, but we didn't know that it was going to cause all these health issues back then. But now we know. So we need to do better. Right. And so really the wrinkles were um, aesthetic, not really um, a, a genetic purpose, correct? Yeah, there's no genetic purpose for them. Um, they were to make the dogs look more fierce and because basically the westernized Sharpe were, you know, non-traditionals was because the market wanted the cute little wrinkly dogs and they still do because the buyers aren't educated to realize that um, in most cases, the ones that are the very heavy wrinkled dogs are at high risk. Not in every case. There's a few lower risk dogs that have some wrinkle, but mo not like the the westernized Sharpe does. Not the extent and not the risk factor. And was there a crossing of uh, other breeds to to um, create more wrinkles? No, I wouldn't say there was that. Um, I think there was crossing of other breeds in the time in, when the Chinese were using them as fighting dogs. For And that was a very short time in history. And that was because they thought it would make them less vulnerable to attacks on, on major organs or blood vessels, etc. Uh, but it turned out they really weren't good for that purpose. Mm -hmm. So that kind of fell away. And then when we imported, started importing them here to the U.S. in the 1970s, uh, we did import some dogs that had the meat mouth, which was higher risk, and we also imported traditionals, which had lower risk. But we didn't, didn't know back then what it meant. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Now we know. Mm-hmm. We have the science. Mm-hmm. And we have the tests that can show what risk factor the dogs are. The genetics on Sharpay auto-inflammatory disease risk are, there are three categories, so to speak, um, of genetic test markers um, that, you know, can indicate higher or low risk. They're separated by what they call a copy number variant. So it's a CNV, 2, 6, or 10, with 2 being lowest risk, 6 being moderate risk, and 10 being high risk. And the genetic test that's out now can pinpoint those markers. Mm-hmm. But not everybody's getting tested and not everybody's heeding the advice that the test offers. Mm-hmm. But there are a few other breeders that are doing that. Diane Gray's doing that, Cindy Canero Cable, and of course Michaela Pinkett, who's a good friend of mine, is also working on the traditional lines. But that right now that's all we have in the U.S., is three, we have four dogs in the U.S. that are lowest risk. Um, we're the starting generation of those that are going to try to make a difference in building a gene pool, but we need more people to focus in that direction, which we're hoping for, because we won't be able to do it all. Um, not so much in Canada. All the breeders that I mentioned, you know, the other three breeders are here in the continental United States. Mm-hmm. There are some other breeders in uh, Europe, uh, the UK, um, Norway, and some, you know, Austria, Germany that are also working on this mm-hmm. with some of the original traditional lines. In fact, some of them are importing directly from China, which is very expensive, which is another reason why it's limited. I'd like to see breeders go into a cooperative where they can both pay for a, you know, or, or get into a group and import um, some good breeding stock and then split the difference and share the stud services. But I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, the dog world is pretty, pretty divided. Pretty lucky. And as, as one client recently told me, um, they talked to a breeder about why they don't breed the lower risk dogs and the breeder said, well, they're just ugly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can adjust your tastes yeah. to something that's healthier but I'd rather have a dog that's not as heavily wrinkled where I'm not going to get a phone call that they're dying of kidney failure down the road. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen, and it's heartbreaking, and it's one of the motivations for me moving towards the traditionals. Can you talk about the uh, different traits that a traditional and a um, non-traditional have? Traditional are a, they're generally a more fit dog. They're much more athletic, and they're built to be a basic, soundly structured dog, fit for working as herding, guard dogs, farm dogs, uh, you know, basic, you know, d- duties like that, they're able to perform better than the westernized Sharpay could. Um, they're, you know, a little bit higher energy, uh, less body wrinkle, less overhead wrinkle on the face at adulthood. They're wrinkled as puppies. Excuse me. Muzzle is more of a bone mouth than a meat mouth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the ears are up, and some of the original traditionals we're going to have to try to breed the ears down by going to the higher risk dogs so that we can build a gene pool because we still need the high risk dogs. Um, otherwise, you run into a genetic bottleneck. 
Mm-hmm. But breeding a high-risk dog to a high-risk dog is only going to produce more high-risk dogs. So we're, we're advised by Dr. Tennell, who's a top researcher on this in the world, basically, um, to breed the lower-risk dogs to the high-risk dogs to expand the gene pool but keep the risk factors low mm-hmm. and continue to build on the lower-risk gene pool. Crossing any kind of other breeds, say, you know, like the American Pitbull Terrier to the Sharpe, the Meat Mouth Sharpe to uh, create a, a healthier line and add new blood. Because I know in some, like in Holland, uh, like with the Pugs and the Bulldogs, they've got the seventh eighth rule where they're allowing people to uh, put a one eighth of. Um, a different uh, breed to to make the muzzle a little longer and, and help with the breathing issues, etc. Well, AKC doesn't have provisions for that, and I doubt they're going to ever have it. Um, we've had some discussions about it on some of the groups that I've been on on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't think we're at that point quite yet. We have a larger gene pool now in China. Well, all we need to do is get them from there to here. Okay. Um, the traditional dog is a basic, sound, healthy, uh, good working dog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Western Eye Sharpe where there runs into the problems. But we've considered, you know, if, if it comes down to it and we can't get enough of a gene pool here, we've considered doing that, but it would go against all AKC rules to do so. Yeah. Um, it would take many, many years like they did with the Dalmatians and their problems with the uremic acid and, and the uh, urinary problems or kidney problems. <clears throat> it took them 20 years to breed out and then breed back in and get it recognized by AKC again. But it was very controversial, and it, like I say, it took a long time. In 20 years, I'll be 75, so I won't probably live to see uh, that happen, although I do you think that that might ultimately be what we need to do because the gene pool would just not expand it quite enough? Yeah, that's just too bad. Maybe Aki, you know, um, maybe what's going on in Europe. Uh, They're a little more open-minded there on, on expanding and yeah. understanding the genetics, long-term genetics for a sustainable, viable gene pool. U.S., they're, they're more about ribbons and trophies. Yeah, and you know, any any idiot can buy two cookie cutter dogs and produce cookie cutter champions. Yeah, yeah. Um, it takes a lot more work to take something and breed back to the original, and then try to bring it into a happy medium somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And we're at the beginning generations of this. Mm-hmm. There's going to take a lot more generations for this to actually come together, and that's even with full cooperation of a good number of the other breeders. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be it's a process ongoing process mm-hmm. and will be for years to come why did, why did you originally choose the the Sharpe? what drew you to them oh you know the original one we there was the magazine article i think it was 1979 in time magazine that that highlighted it and you know we got interested in it then and then when they came out on hill street blues a friend of mine's dog uh, it got more exposure and we got more jazzed about it and actually went out and got one. So, and then we started breeding from there on out. Mm-hmm. 
but we bred the meat mouth because that's what everybody wanted. And back then, we didn't know that it was going to cause health problems. Mm-hmm. We all contributed to it that we're breeding then, myself included. But years later, when I came back into it, we realized what a misstep that was. What is the AKC standards for Sharpe as far as the height and the weight and, and structure and all that? Uh, and what is the what is the ideal that you guys are looking for? Well, and it varies as it will between, you know, the four of us that are actually working on this. But the the AKC standard is about uh, 18 to 20 inches at the withers and about 35 to 55 pounds. So that can vary quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they call, they don't penalize too much wrinkle as they do in the FCI standard. Uh they ears are tight to the head in the U.S. standard. They're a little looser on that in the Chinese standard. Uh, the Chinese dogs are, are basically, you know, heavily wrinkled dogs are faulted. Uh, the dog's supposed to be moderate, uh, not have the heavily padded muzzle, not have the heavy wrinkle in the Chinese standard. They're taller. They're, they're I think, 18 to 22 inches or 18 to 21 inches, mm-hmm. something of that part so they're a taller dog and they're a more fit athletic dog mm-hmm. than the u.s standard the u.s standard is more heavy set mm-hmm. so much more breed type in the u.s standard weight standard you know i can't recall off the top of my head what the chinese weight standard was but i think it was somewhere between 45 and uh, 65 pounds also right around that area right. But they're taller dogs there, or they allow for taller dogs there. Right. The traditionals that I've encountered have actually been on the low end of the scale, but they're still on the scale. Uh, what? So you don't see a lot of meat, meat mouse in, in uh, China? Is it? In- yeah, they do have them, and some of the original dogs that came over here were meat mouse. Okay. And this is kind of where the original genetic mutation split and we went from the westernized pay to the you know from the traditional pay to the westernized pay when the first dogs came in so we got both from that gene pool but most of them over in china at this point are the lower risk dogs Mm -hmm. so they meet the chinese standards and they're less risk for sharp auto-inflammatory disease and could you talk about the you know just an overview of of the history of the Sharpe as you know it? They were, they are a very, very old breed. They go back before the Ming Dynasty, some say thousands of years. They're supposed to be one of the first breeds that split off from the Gray Wolf, uh, Sharpe and Shiba Inu. So they're what they call a primal breed, which means there's less other breeds introduced into their gene pool. They're more close to the original uh, Canis uh, lupus. You know, the gray wolf. Mm-hmm. They're closer to it than a lot of breeds are. So they're what they call a primal breed, closer to the original. So it's a very, very old breed. And uh, they were used for guarding, hunting, basic work dogs. They were not laid back, sit on the couch. You'll have people tell you that they guarded the temples and that they were this or that or the other. And the reality was they were the poor man's dog. They were the farmer's dog. Right. They were a working dog, hunting and guarding protection. 
And what are uh, the traditional Sharpays being used today in China for? You know, they're, they're not really used as a working dog like they once were. Um, they are bred by a few Sharpay fanciers. But dogs are not as big a part of the culture in a sense that they are in the U.S. as far as showing and uh, sporting. Mm-hmm. So it's a little, it's, it's, they're better suited for the work, but they're not really doing so much of the hard work that they've done in the past there anymore either as time has passed and the need for it is not as much as it was in the early days. I would love to see that. Um, they're so good in agility, and in fact, I've got some photos that I'll be sending to you on you know, some of the action shots and their work in agility. Um, I, you know, most of all, I'd like to see them be healthier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I deal with a lot of pet owners that are heartbroken because uh, I've run that large health group. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to see less heartbreak and less suffering. Uh, ideally, we would get more towards a mix between the two varieties that was as low risk as possible. But that's not something I'm probably going to see in my lifetime uh, in the next 20 years or so. So it's it's something that I am <clears throat> excuse me envision uh, breeders cooperating, breeders heading back to the basic core of the breed, which is the traditional, and finding a happy medium between the two that will make them happy with what they're breeding while being at lowest risk of health issues. Mm-hmm. But I love to I'd love to see them in the show ring. I'd like to see them recognized as their own class or own group. Excuse me variety within the group of the Sharpay. Right now there's the brush coat and the uh, horse coat variety, but I'd like to see there be a traditional variety recognized by AKC. Mm-hmm. When you first started um, with the Sharpay, did you um, did you show your dogs? Yes, I used to show them very frequently. We used to be out every weekend. This is back when they were CSPCA, Chinese Sharpay Club of America, before we were AKC certified. Um, in recent years, I don't show so much because it's a lot of work on a bad lower back. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's gotten to the point where they're rewarding dogs that have unhealthy traits. So I don't really believe in the beauty competitions or confirmation showing um, of our current uh, mother club, the Chinese Sharpay Club of America, and the AKC. I think they've headed in the wrong direction, and I just can't support that as being of major importance over health. We're not breeding health first, and we need to be breeding health first as an overall group. Well, what would have to happen is the mother club, the Chinese Sharpay Club of America, would have to petition to have the standard adjusted. Right. Um, that's just not going to happen. I've spoken out about it and been harshly criticized um, for even bringing the subject up. Uh, there are people in the majority in the club that feel that a standard is an edict handed, handed down from God. And they're not realizing that it's human-made things that can have flaws in it. Mm-hmm. And right now our standard is flawed because it's not, it's still promoting heavily wrinkled dogs and that's what the judges are choosing. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, most of our work is probably going to be in the next 10 years is going to be working with them in agility and possibly in obedience. So uh, confirmation we're not going to do a whole lot with. I mean, we can enter all the shows we want. And in Europe, they have some that are doing fairly well on the shows now, but it was a great big fight for them to get that recognition. Mm-hmm. We're just, they're ahead of us there on this. Mm-hmm. We're just starting out on this in the U.S. and Canada. Right. So it's, we've got years of work to come on this before we're going to get any changes made. Uh, and there's a lot of resistance. Did- Unfortunately, there's a, there's so much resistance and too much money involved. For yeah. Some of these big time show breeders that um, they have the ability to to stop a lot of movements. Unfortunately. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. They absolutely do. Mm-hmm. You make a lot of enemies trying to do anything new. People are resistant to change. And, you know, I wrote an article called The High Cost Acute, and you can probably find that on the traditional Sharpay discussion group. Mm -hmm. But it talks about how the buyers also, they're the ones with the power. And so if we educate the buyers to go a little bit back, less on the wrinkle when they're choosing, um, then they're going to have better outcomes and the breed is going to have a better outcome. But when buyers are just picking the most wrinkled puppy that they can, they're supporting the system that's failing the dogs. And there are many more buyers than they are breeders, and the buyers control the market. So I think that educating the buyers before they buy, before they end up on my health group with a dog and kidney failure, if we can get them before then, then we could get the market to shift. But that's going to be a monumental task, too. Yeah, I, I come from the, the line of thinking, and the and it's kind of probably naive because the more that I get into the dog world, the the more I, I realize there's a lot of opposition. Yeah, um, my line of thinking is always well, you know, the the breed club just you know get rid of it in your life and and create a cooperative of you know say the four people four people yes. and creature create your own club and your own standards and um promote it that ultimately way. i think that's what we're going to have to do yeah right but we need more we need more people that are interested in it and so we're we're pulling more in we got um diane gray just just and a friend of mine denise barger just imported two CNV2 dogs are the lowest risk. Mm-hmm. A good good friend of mine owns the other. But, you know, as we go along, I think some of these new breeders that are not so deeply entrenched in the show culture mm-hmm. um, will be looking at what is going to actually serve the dogs because it should be about that first, mm-hmm. the dogs and the pet owners. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone discounts the pet owners. They, they talk about the people that own the show dogs but they kind of write off the pet owners and they're the largest part of the population mm-hmm. with the dogs um so they they're important too you know their hearts get broken just same as a show person's does if a dog goes into kidney failure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well they the thing is is they're the ones that actually hold the power and they're just not wielding it yeah they're, they're letting the the, the shows dictate the direction of the breed, even if it's down a path of destruction. Mm-hmm. 
And could you talk about um, the difference in, in, say, things like uh, temperament and and um, personality traits between the traditional and the meaty mouth? The meaty mouth dogs tend to be more laid back. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionals tend to be higher energy, more athletic. Um, both are fiercely protective because they still have that guard dog instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionals have a little bit higher prey drive. So that's something that, you know, we, we can moderate with, you know, taking them and crossing them in with the meat mouse. Mm-hmm. So we can have the best of both worlds. Um, you know, the, the meat mouse dogs have a tendency to be more needy, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, more prone to separation anxiety. Um, traditionals have a tendency to be more independent. Um, they, they're loyal and they're fierce you know, in protection, mm-hmm. but they're more independent, so they're not as emotionally needy as a lot of, and this is a generalization, mm-hmm. but as a lot of the uh, meat mouth pay tend to be a little bit more um, emotionally needy. Interesting, yeah. Not in a bad way, right. but just, you know, in a way where they require more direct one-on-one attention and coddling. Right. Your passion for dogs developed, what was the... I've always had a passion for dogs. We had them when I was a child. We had German Shepherd mixes. Uh Uh, And then we had St. Bernard. My brother had one and my sister had a Dalmatian. I never had one when I was growing up. I wasn't allowed to have one. Um, It was just bad timing when I was of age to want one. So I didn't get my first one until my first Sharpay. It was my dog. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there on in, it was, I was, you know, boom, hit the show ring and got into that and then got into the breeding and uh, went from there. You know, I had to be out of it for a few years after my divorce because I didn't have my own property mm-hmm. where I could actually have dogs for breeding. But uh, then I got back into it in 2005 and it just followed. And then when I saw the health problems that were going on, I started the health group. I moderated on a few and then started the health group on Facebook as well as the traditional Sharpay discussion group mm-hmm. so that we could find more like-minded people. And I follow the science on it and the studies and the research very carefully. Um, Dr. Linda Tinnell has been invaluable. I mean, just priceless for the breed and what she's done for it as far as the science, the research, and helping individuals. So... You know, I'm following along that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it started out, you know, when I was very young because, you know, the family always had dogs, dogs and cats. Yeah. And, uh, can you talk about some of your mentors while you first started getting involved in, in some dog activities? My first mentor in the, in the Sharpay was a lady named Betty Small. And she started out with the original. In fact, her and her husband owned the uh, first... Uh, Sharpay champion in the U.S. His name was Siskiyou Fu Manchu. And he came from uh, import lines that were fairly close because this was early on in the early days. She was my mentor for years. Um, I also met a lady named Cindy Burton. Uh, Her and her husband, Mike, were mentors of mine. They um, owned uh, Sure Daddy, which was the dog on Hill Street Blues. Um, And they had a beautiful line of dogs. They had wonderful integrity in what they were doing with the breed. Um, and they were wonderful mentors for me. Mm-hmm. And then I went from there. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And I'm looking for more mentors now because you can never stop learning. Right. Can you kind of talk about um, the ideal living situations for Sharpay? Or can they live in an apartment or do they need more space or... Uh, the traditionals might need a little more space because, like I say, they're they're a more athletic dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they do well in apartments. They housebreak very easily, mm-hmm. which is always a big plus. Um, some of them do tend to have separation anxiety, uh, typically more of the meat mouse than the bone mouse do. Uh, but they work basically in any circumstance. I know there are some breeders that are breeding miniature ones. Uh for more apartment-style living, but I don't see any reason necessarily why there's that much of a difference because the size difference isn't much. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're suited to any type of situation, but, you know, of course they would love to run and play and romp, all of them, if they had the room to do so. Mm-hmm. But the traditionals, I would say, need more of, a, more of a yard and garden and more attention as to physical activity. And how do they handle the um, kind of the extreme ends of, of uh, weather, like the cold or the hot? Sharpie don't do well in heat. Uh, the meat mouse specifically. The, the traditionals, they adjust better. But it's harder for the meat mouse Sharpie to breed because they have the, the brachycephalic muzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, at least during the early stages where the muzzle's too, you know, short Mm -hmm. and they do have a tendency with a lot of the meat mouse of what we've seen in recent years of stenotic nares Mm -hmm. where the nostrils are not big enough so they don't handle heat really well the traditionals it doesn't bother them as much Mm -hmm. um you know as far as cold goes they handle cold as well as any other dog for the most part um you know none of them can be out in 10 degree weather for very long you know more than a few minutes uh, but it's the heat that is the biggest problem, and, and that's primarily with the meat mouth pay. And how do you, do, you, do the Sharpays do with um, other dogs? It depends. Um, temperaments vary, um, and the type of pairing you have as far as whether you have, you know, two females, two males, or opposite sex varies. Typically, um, two females are not as good a combination Two males are a little bit better, and opposite-sex pairs tend to do best. Mm-hmm. I find with females, they're the most challenging if, if you have two because of the hormonal shifts. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm, I, I have intact females, so we're dealing with more of a hormonal shift there. But I find that with females, mother-daughter pairs are the best because they have a tendency to retain that bond, and so there's no conflict. And how do they do with other animals, say, like cats? Mine are used to cats. Um, so they, they, you know, I have pictures of them sleeping on the sofa with cats. Um, they're, you know, I haven't had them with, I know some people have guinea pigs with them. Some people have got birds that they let loose with them. It depends on what they're raised with and what they're exposed to and also how they the owner handles the situation as far as correcting a problem before it gets to be a big problem. If you were going to uh, uh, cross one of your dogs, what other breed would you use? I, you know, I would want to, if it was me, Mm -hmm. 
I'd want to stick with one of the Asian primal breeds, um, which would be something like the Shiba Inu or something that something that's close to where the Sharpay branched off. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the roots, mm -hmm. it would be something where we would have to adjust, you know, for depending on which breed for temperament and you know health, etc. Um, soundness and structure. Uh, but I would go back, if I had my way, to some of the original Chinese primal breeds. Mm -hmm. John, not necessarily Chinese, but Asian primal breeds. Right. We've had discussions on the, with the Chongqing dog yeah. or the uh, uh, Shiba Inu. Mm -hmm. And I would tend toward the Shiba Inu because I think that they're a very similar breed and they're very close in where they branched off with the Sharpei. Mm -hmm. But it would take a while to get confirmation back as far as the basic uh, standards go, both the Chinese or Hong Kong standard and the U.S. standard. But it's something that would take generations to accomplish. Right. But it took generations to get into this mess, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, most definitely. So digging out, it's not going to be a picnic. So what other breeds uh, interest you that you've never really uh, dealt with but you, you, you like? You know, what I like, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's just because they're so adorable, is the Boston Terrier. <laughs> yeah, I'm upset. I get a big kick out of them. They've got so much personality. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I'm a Sharpay person. Right. I really can't imagine having, not having Sharpay. You know, and it's very true of a lot of people. Even when they've had health issues, they keep coming back to the breed because they're so unique in their personality and their intelligence and their loyalty, their devotion, um, their protectiveness, uh, and just their personalities. They've got a lot of personality. And people get hooked on them. Right. And you usually can't have just one. Yeah, well, with the Chow and the Sharpay, they're, they're very closely related, too. Yeah. Um, they go back to the, what they call the Tang Dog. Mm -hmm. And the Tang Dog is one of the original um, splits from the, from, you know, the, the Sharpay, the Chow, and, and some of the other breeds fall under that category of Tang Dogs, where they originally were before humans got their hands and manipulated the genetics. Mm -hmm. um, this is what you had. They were the street dogs. They were the farmer's dogs. They were the, you know, the work dogs. And that's where they all kind of come from is variations of the tang dogs. You know, tang dogs are the tail upright, curled over the back. Um, in the chow, they had, if you, if you like chows, if you've ever seen some of the original, um, and they're shorter coated, and they look like a completely different dog. Right, well, thank you for your time, and um, hopefully we'll uh, maybe do this again. Excellent. Sounds great. Thank right. you, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.